as we try to go on to economic recovery and the hardship these fam families are facing everywhere, frankly, around the globe, how can we not also move forward with reducing emissions for climate? Why can't we do both? Welcome to episode 10 of What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. One of the questions I'm often asked is how I feel about the lack of leadership from the United States on climate change. The truth is, the US is a leader on climate change, just not where you might think. Yes, the United States has Donald Trump. Yes, it pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And yes, there is a huge amount more that they could and should be doing at the federal level. But the federal government is not the sum of US action on climate change. Cities, states and businesses are America's climate innovators, deploying bottom-up solutions and working with legislatures, city councils and corporate boards to drive the transition to a low-carbon economy. Indeed, sub-national climate leadership in the US is thriving. There's one state in particular that often comes to mind when thinking about climate action in the US, and that's California. California is the fifth largest economy in the world, and one of the few places where, as the economy has grown, emissions have dropped. I was delighted to have the opportunity recently to talk to one of the people behind the success, the former California State Senator Fran Pavley, to find out just how they did it. Fran served for 29 years in elected office, including 14 years in the California Assembly and the State Senate, during which time she authored some of the most significant climate policies anywhere in the United States. Having stepped away from politics, Fran is now the Environmental Policy Director of the Schwarzenegger Institute. I opened our conversation by asking Fran to provide an overview of California's action on climate change in recent years. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Please also tell a friend about the show or give us a rating or a review as it will help others to discover the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Fran Pavley. Maybe because we're at the far western edge of... The North American continent, we do think a little independently sometimes. Um, but once uh, President Bush at the time backed out of the Kyoto Agreement back around 2000, right before that, he got elected and then backed out. Uh, one of the reactions we had here in California was, uh, well, maybe we can do our fair share. The big argument against that was, well, you're just one state. How can you make a difference? Uh, we decided, um, because we started building a coalition, that this wasn't just about climate change, but also becoming uh, more independent, if you will, on where we get our energy. But if you know anything about California, our air quality in several parts of the state is a real health problem a lot of children with asthma, and still smog and air pollution. 
both health impacts and also growing studies we started paying attention to about the direct impacts of climate change, not just to the globe, but maybe like talking with people in New Zealand, when I talk to people in California, they want to know well, how does it affect me personally, not just a global scale. So Union of Concerned Scientists had done an amazing study looking at probable direct impacts to California, and this is in the year 2000. More volatile snowpack, unpredictable snowmelt, longer periods of drought, sea level rise, you know, lack of adequate water supply and how that affects agriculture. What is the link between warmer temperatures and worse ozone and smog problems relating to public health? They had a long list of things. And I think the big surprise to me today is everything these scientists that we listen to were talking about have come true and even more so. So uh, back in 2001 or two, we passed 10 that we really hadn't realized could sort of lead the way to this broader discussion. A gentleman I had served with named Senator Byron Shear authored the first renewable portfolio standard bill. Very controversial. All our utility companies opposed it. Businesses opposed it. And what it did was uh, require a set aside of 20% of all the energy you produced by a utility company would have to come from clean, renewable sources. In California, be more wind and solar. I know for you, more hydroelectric power, which we're jealous of. And um, geothermal. So that was passed. And the surprise about that was putting that into statute, making it a law, having targets that were enforceable, sent the strongest market signal possible. And probably not by coincidence, maybe because we're such a big market, we're up to 40 million people now, um, the price of photovoltaics came down, it became affordable, and now it's even less expensive than coal and some other choices. Fast forward to just a few years ago, my colleague in the state Senate, Kevin DeLeon, passed a bill at 100% renewables by 2045. We went easily to 33%. And if you count hydro today, we're over 50%. We don't count large hydro. And uh, wind, um, Business interests are very interested in California still, increasing amount of interest in geothermal and um, solar coupled with storage for built-in resiliency from wildfires and other problems we have. Um, this is not just an environmental issue here now, it's an economic issue. And the number of new jobs created by mostly Having in-state production of energy sources turned about turned out to be one of the smartest things we've done because we've been sort of gamed by out-of-state energy producers as well as countries from other parts of the world. The one other bill I'll talk about that passed in 2002, I was a freshman, was reducing uh, climate pollution, greenhouse gas emissions from the tailpipes of automobiles. The largest source of Carbon pollution in California's mobile sources. We have 25 million cars on the road. Well, not during the coronavirus, but generally speaking, it's 
um, not something particularly to be proud of. So uh, focusing on automobiles was key to this. We are allowed, California is allowed to pass more stringent emission standards for automobiles than the federal government. It actually was in the first Federal Clean Air Act back in 1970. The Trump administration wants to take away our authority to do so. Other states, and you mentioned subnationals and the impact we can have, subnationals have the ability to either adopt California's regulations on automobiles or stay with the weaker federal standards. Uh, 14 other states have adopted our emissions, and I believe Canada has as well. So we're getting up to over 40% of all the automobiles sold in the country have these new, stricter models. It's really created a, a market for electric vehicles. The way it works is a big automobile manufacturer, let's say Ford, they have to meet a certain reduction target and how much emissions in their fleet of vehicles. So if they want to sell those bigger cars, okay, you can. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to balance that with really publicizing and selling electric vehicles or lower carbon fuel vehicles to get to that average that they're required to get to. And so that's created a market. So most all the major um U.S. and foreign manufacturers are doing both. They may be still selling those pickups because some people need them agriculturally, but they're also selling um, a broader section of alternative fuel vehicles and particularly electric vehicles. So those were our two success stories early on based on science, but the public supports those and they've both been profitable and help clean up our air. Let's ask what portion of uh, vehicles in California is electric at the moment? Not enough would be the answer. I think we're trying to, we keep trying to get to uh, zero emission all the way across. Uh, our goal is to have 1.5 million within a few years. Um, frankly, with the lower price of fuel, there's not as much incentive to purchase them. Um, but we're seeing a growing interest and in not just for environmental purposes, but still electricity in California is far less expensive than buying gasoline and putting it in your car. So I think you're going to see increased uh, amount of people driving electric vehicles for several reasons. And one is there's actually a policy with our Air Resources Board that by about 2030, known no new cars can be sold in California. Sorry, that is, are, that a, no, is that a law? It's a policy by the Air Resources Board. I think it was put in as a goal by Mary Nichols and how to reach our SB 32 objectives by 2030. We have to figure out how to have a 40% reduction. So, um, it, it, frankly, this is from my legislative perspective, it needs to be put in statute and signed into law because uh, that sends um, not only legal enforcement signals, but market signals as well. Uh, we have about half of our automobile manufacturers saying uh, they will comply with California's policies with or without the federal government. So, there are a number of countries uh, that have put in place 
um, laws or targets that say after a certain date, we won't allow vehicle, you know, um, internal combustion engine vehicles to be sold. They might still be circulating in the secondhand market and still on the roads, but but no new vehicles sold. The UK, I think, have just bought theirs forward from the year 2040 to the year 2035, and I think there's a number of other European countries. And wh- one of the things that's been I've been thinking about that is is that there may be a point at which uh, actually the um, the the industry to support internal combustion engine vehicles is more expensive than um, than it's actually viable. That that the the there could be a tipping point where uh, the process of extracting and refining and distributing petroleum actually becomes so expensive because the market is shrinking and you don't get the scale, you don't have the kind of same kind of scale that you do at the moment that helps to keep it cheap. Is that, I mean, I, I just I want mean, to test that out with you because I, I, I could be entirely I, wrong I, about that, that please, just, but I well, want to know if it. I'm not an economist, <laughs> um, uh, but that makes sense as a, as a possible outcome. I mean, I don't know if it's a comparison or not, but we're seeing, for example, coal in the United States plummet from 50% of the country used it. And I think it's down, down to, I don't know, 17% or less. California passed a law, I would say it's 10 years ago or more, that prevented us from extending any more out-of-state coal contracts. We don't have coal-fired power plants, but we don't import it either. So the city of Los Angeles went from 50% coal uh, down to now less than 20%, and they're up to almost 30% from renewable energy. They're not going backwards. And so we're drying, sort of drying up that market, if you will, and it's now more expensive than renewable energy. So um, I see a similar play in the oil and gas field, and I think some of those oil companies are looking at their plan Bs. They used to look at low-carbon fuels here as an option, and then they decided to just sort of dig in, uh, put their feet in the ground and, and not um, comply with things. So they've been difficult to work with. But I think you're seeing a change. And I think they're seeing it, too. I, I see them more invested in uh, generating plastics yeah. from fossil fuels. So, um, Which is they, itself a problem, right? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. We're going in the wrong direction right now with plastics again because of the coronavirus. They've taken away the reusable bags in our markets and everything is triple wrapped in plastic. <laughs> right. That's unfortunate. I, I mean, so I was talking to another uh, um, uh, a guest a, a little while ago who was saying that part of the issue that we've got is, of course, is that the oil majors uh, the valuations on the stock market are related to the reserves that they have known in the ground, right? So they kind of, they'll dig a test well, they'll discover what they think is the size of a field, and then they'll monetize that on the uh, on the stock market. And so everything depends on their ability to actually extract and sell that reserve. And, you know, we know that we can't even use 80% of our known reserves, let alone new reserves, and have any hope of staying within that 1.5 to 2 degree threshold. And so, there, you know, you can see why they're sort of saying, okay, well, if you don't want petroleum, let's sell you plastic, because both of those things rely on being able to extract. That's exactly that, right. 
that reserve. And you're not going to get anything other than resistance until we work out economically how to write that down. Uh, and of course, the size of that is just colossal and doesn't come easily at a time like this when the coronavirus you know, economic impact right around the world is so severe and, and we're pouring huge sums of money just into supporting our citizens to stay afloat while yes. they lose their jobs. So um, I, I wonder if California's, you know, put any thinking into that side of things or if it's just focusing on the on the demand side. Uh, we're thinking on all sides of it and uh, California has a real challenge in that we do still ha um, have uh, not only oil refineries, but you can extract oil from under the ground. We regulate fracking, but don't ban it. I guess the only good news is the price of gas is so low that it's not financially attractive for them to expand or try to expand oil reserves. We don't have what like Texas has and things like that. But let me share with you maybe a parallel story where I keep thinking this is hopeful. I told you our coal story. Well, natural gas was the big supposed transitional fuel and everyone overly switched on the natural gas, frankly. Natural gas will be something that you won't see 20 years from now, probably. We are No new natural gas power plants are being built in California. Why is that? Because we've been able to ramp up renewable energy. And even when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, what we're really focused on, and one of my priorities, is ramping up energy or battery storage. So it's 24-7. So here's an example of a success story. About a half hour from where I live on the Ventura Coast between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara was a huge natural gas power plant. Our energy commission made the finding that that was not needed, so they weren't given permits to extend their life. Uh, very controversial. It was shut down. The lights didn't go out. We've gone through you know, the, the threats where you have to have natural gas because of a reliability. There was just an announcement uh, that a solar company is building a battery storage facility on that same site changing and transitioning the labor source to work in this new facility, and they're starting construction in a few months. We're seeing that. So no new natural gas power plants are being built in California or will be. We have the same debate here in New Zealand. The um, gas as our transition fuel has been around for at least a decade, if not, if not longer. Um, when our government came in, one of the things that it did very early on was it said that we would ban uh, new offshore oil and gas exploration. So we weren't going to shut down existing permits, but we said there won't be any new permits issued. In other words, you know, yes. this is finite. There is a right. time after which, right. you know, if you exploit your existing fields, there won't be anything to come after that. Uh, and we had huge resistance. And it's it's interesting hearing you talk because we had the same arguments thrown at us. That means, you know, unstable energy supply, you know, you're going to have brownouts, the price of electricity is going to go through the roof, you know, all of those same kind of arguments. Actually, what has happened since then is that there's been huge investment in uh, hydrogen, uh, which is mm -hmm. 
a kind of a new sector for New Zealand. It's not something that we've really majored in in the past. Uh, and people are starting to explore other renewables and, and you know, the storage one's really interesting. And I wanted to pick up on something that you said right at the very beginning about that, because you also had a, uh, a governor in 2018, Jerry Brown, who um, issued an executive order that said that you had to be 100% renewable uh, by 2045 and at least 60% by 2030, which mm-hmm. given the starting position seems pretty extraordinary. And you said something about the use of batteries and storage. And I understand that you had a a, a plan to put a million solar panels and batteries into houses, uh, which in, in New Zealand sounds like a lot, but we only have um, 5 million people. So uh, I, I, looked that, I looked that up. So you can just cut that and make it your yeah. similar objective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one, one eighth, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and um, yeah, I mean, we're a long way off that in comparable terms, but you've actually exceeded that already. Haven't you? Yes. This was governor Schwarzenegger's executive order. You talk about market signals right? on the million solar roofs. We had a celebration just last year and reaching that objective. Uh, and mostly it's, Rooftop solar for individual homes and businesses and schools. Schools have done very well with this. It helps reduce their utility bills. It's a great learning experience for for students. And the money they're saving on their utility bills is going back into the classroom. So now we're up to our next campaign, the Million Solar Batteries. And there will be a press conference next week on that. And we're seeing a huge explosion increase in the battery storage market. One of our major utilities, uh, I can't remember how many megawatts or whatever they just purchased. Everyone is in this field. We see that with the right market signals, we can start driving down those prices so that everyone will benefit no matter you live in California. How did did you get all those houses? Was that subsidies directly or... Was um, there a regulation, or how, how did you how did you get several that? ways? Our our major problem, and I'm a middle class homeowner, was that only if you had money could you make that upfront investment and put solar panels on your roof. Well, um, financial markets came in and found a way that they would put them up on your roof, and then you would pay for it over time on the savings on your utility bill. So you signed a contract, maybe keeping whatever your rate of utility is, figuring out how much you used each month and keep that flat for a while. But with the savings, they paid off your panels that were put on your roof. And then you you either could rent them or most people purchase them and kept them because they're good for at least 20 years. So that was key because that, that made it affordable to average people. Right. So it's, uh, this, I mean, this is an interesting one because it's basically a financing issue then, right? That, you, that the upfront capital cost is prohibitive, but the savings are significant. And I, which is actually exactly the same with electric vehicles, right? That, that the, yes. the vehicle is more expensive. Mm-hmm. The running cost is, is low. I, I drive an electric vehicle. I'm astonished that it, ta- it costs me $10 to fill up. Uh, and and when I was driving around in my old Toyota Corolla, uh, you know, it would be seventy to eighty dollars yes. to fill up. So it's isn't it's that a, amazing? Yeah. yeah, 
it, it's a it's a pretty remarkable um, uh, uh, savings that you get on on that. So how do we how do we kind of swap one for the other? So the, just, uh, on, just sorry to interrupt you, but on the uh, solar panels, our wastewater treatment plants are doing that now. They are putting solar panels everywhere. They're almost off the grid in their water treatment at all their plants. So they're floating they solar money. panels on top of the. They put solar panels in the area either next to or on top right. of the water treatment facilities on the land that they own. They didn't have the upfront money to pay for it. So the utility companies can profit by this by putting in all the upfront costs. You pay it back off the savings. The water district, my water bill hasn't gone up at all. And eventually those are going to be paid off pretty quickly. And then the water district is coming out ahead. So we're seeing it. Um, in schools, water districts, all over the place. And I see that coming potentially with solar and storage. I just can't figure out the financing of it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's on the, I'm sure it's on the way. Um, Cause we, I mean, we are also seeing uh, new business models starting to emerge in New Zealand of the type, I think, inspired by California and other places in the U S where, um, People actually, my my parents um, have just had solar plus battery installed on their house at no upfront cost, yeah. um, oh. because they, they've amortised that over the over the life, and they've still had a reduction. I think it's somewhere between twenty and thirty percent in their in their power bill, even with the capital cost of the of the solar and, and battery installation uh, put in place. It's also become increasingly needed in California because of our problem with power shutoffs related to wildfires, high winds. We have too many overground transmission lines. We've had some really major problems where people are evacuated or schools are shut down. And so the term is resiliency, really increased interest in resiliency because when businesses and schools are shut down um, and homeowners are left in the dark at home with no and all the hotels are sold out and nowhere to go. That's that's a crisis. Can I ask you about the wildfires? Um, here in New Zealand, the news and our recent memory has been dominated by the fires in Australia, which were just extraordinary. It, it just uh, absolutely biblical in, in, in nature to the point that um, uh, our own skies darkened and the sun turned orange in New Zealand. And New Zealand is as far from Australia uh, as Morocco is from the United Kingdom. So it's a it's a it's a it's a big yeah. distance for uh, you know that um, density of uh, fire smoke to to cover. And that was really shocking to us. But California and, and Australia, you know, like California, Australia does experience fires regularly and they have been getting more frequent more severe but not long before australia's fire fires happened we saw just some terrible images coming out of california huge parts of the country and and there was a quote in the san francisco chronicle that said that the fires had intensified fears that parts of california had become almost too dangerous to inhabit is that true is that a is that a true statement that that actually there may be parts of the state that people should not live because the fire risk is now so great? 
I think people are being more cautious and maybe cities are being more cautious in allowing additional homes and higher density up in those kinds of areas surrounded by a lot of chaparral and forests that need uh, cleansing. Insurance companies have been reluctant. Um, our insurance commissioners had to step in and sort of force them not to drop everyone's insurance. Of course, once there's a problem, they don't want to. <laughs> insurance is great until you have to use it. So, <laughs> um, so that's a that's a problem. So I think we're learning not to repeat those mistakes if this is, quote, the new normal. And we're seeing not just that Northern California fires that you suggested, but in Southern California and Santa Barbara and where I live in the Santa Monica Mountains, uh, not to that intensity, but erratic and high winds that we've never seen before. We're used to seasonal fires or every seven years and they're coming through. This is like nothing we've ever seen. Winds changing directions dramatically back and forth. We, most people in California have uh, changed over time and may all have uh, fire retardant roofs. Our fire departments require 200 foot brush clearance. Uh, we're smarter in sort of hardening the landscape. Utility companies are uh, unfortunately having to double down and even strengthen their power poles that'll probably be here for the next hundred years. While others are really focused on how to maybe look also more at microgrids, you're seeing more and more communities talking about that renewable energy with storage and microgrids um, that makes you more resilient in these cases. We have a similar conversation here um, where we're seeing not, I mean, we are seeing an increase in fire risk, but for us, it's really around storms. So we're getting kind of one in 100 year storms pretty much every year now. Uh, and there have been a few cases where tens of thousands of houses in a particular area will lose their power because the transmission lines have been knocked out. And those areas where, you know, even if one in four houses on a street has solar plus battery, it means that everyone on that street can have a hot shower, yeah. which of course, because these storms don't occur in the warmest times of year and that's when everyone wants a hot shower. So so there is an attractiveness to uh, to that. Can, can I return to something that you said uh, quite early on? You were talking about how when you made those changes in the law, the market responded and actually uh, significant numbers of jobs were created. And of course, jobs are on everybody's minds here in New Zealand, in the United States, right around the world right now, because regardless of you know how the country has coped with the health crisis of covid-19 we are all dealing with a very very significant economic crisis huge numbers of people suddenly find themselves unemployed and that's happened here in new zealand as well and so we are thinking about you know how do we stimulate the economy and create jobs in a short period of time in a way that distributes that uh, capital back through the economy and gets things rolling again and makes sure that people are able to keep the roof over their head and put food on the tables. And I'm just interested in in the experience that you had where what you're telling, what, what, I, I might be wrong about this, but what I heard you say was 
essentially that you put in place a regulation that created a market that created jobs at a greater rate than the status quo. Can you expand on that for me? Maybe just a little bit. And California is relatively unique compared to many of the other states. Maybe it's because of our size. Um, we have some agencies that are second to none, our Air Resources Board and our California Energy Commission, and some very progressive cities also in, in California. And they're able to implement these laws and come up with a variety of policies. Um, legislators don't have to uh, get weighed down in all the details. Our bills aren't thousands of pages long with how to do all this, we can say Air Resources Board, we'd like emissions reduced from the tailpipe of car automobiles. Uh, we're going to hold hearings in a year or two and let us know how it turns out. You know, so, right. but, but because it's in statute and it is enforceable and the Air Resources Board is known for enforcing their laws, um, I think that signal is sent. Also, we try to figure out ways to provide incentives to some extent, whether it's rebates or tax incentives, or you mentioned looking at cap and trade, you can use some of those allowance funds for those purposes, let's say uh, job creation. Well, you can decide what, what you want to use it for and your priorities or how to um, reduce energy consumption in um, disadvantaged communities and apartment buildings that are old and need retrofitting. So. Um, it it can be done, but it's very difficult. And I have to share with you, I uh, read this morning the letter that you got from your climate commission. Mm. <laughs> and I may be using that some of uh, tomorrow in a webinar with UCLA and USC on just that topic, stimulating the economy, workforce transition to newer jobs, how we can... Um, as we try to go on to economic recovery and the hardships these fam families are facing everywhere, frankly, around the globe, how can we not also move forward with reducing emissions for climate? Why can't we do both and not let this um, crisis force us back and do where we were 20 years ago? So, um, Kudos to you on that letter. I wrote down all six principles. I think they're good. I, I think so too. Uh, I mean, I have to say, I think the proof of our government's uh, pudding um, uh, will be in the pudding. Sorry, and and the, it, I mean, this is why we set up the Climate Change Commission. They've actually only been in operation uh, since November last year. Um, that that was a byproduct of a bill that um, I put through. Uh, last year called the Zero Carbon Act, which has similarities to some of the legislation that you've introduced in California, mm -hmm. different in some ways, but but some some strong similarities. And of course, um, our agencies were talking to some of uh, your agencies in California whilst we were putting together that that law. Um, but it just demonstrates the, the usefulness of those institutions that they sit there and they say, well, you know, we need to hold the government to the the feet to the fire um, to make sure that it actually does what it what it says it wants to do. Uh, and so it, it is something that that we're exploring. I, I've actually taken a view here that it's irresponsible of us not to put that stimulus money towards the climate crisis, because if we don't, then our kids and our grandkids who are going to be paying off the debt through their taxes 
that you know that we're currently racking up to get us through the COVID nineteen crisis. They're going to have to pay for that, but they're also going to have to pay for the cost of transitioning to a low carbon economy and adapting to the effects of climate change. Um, but we can avoid that if we say, well, we're you know yes, we're borrowing that money to you know get us through this crisis, but but actually if we put that money to work reducing the chances that they'll have to pay those transition costs and those adaptation costs, then we hit two birds with one stone. And in fact, that to me is the only responsible thing to do. We've been um, a little bit jealous in California. Only the federal government can sort of print money and pass out the stimulus money. Uh, States have to have a balanced budget every year. So we're in a cutting process. But we are thinking about a potential voter-approved bond uh, in the November ballot, which would serve as an economic stimulus and uh, under a lens of uh, reducing climate pollution as well, but both creating the jobs and everything else. But uh, it's even in California, which you think of as being progressive, very hard to pass a tax measure because generally speaking, it requires more than a majority vote not just to the legislature, but the voters. Yeah, California has an extraordinarily high degree of direct democracy, um, probably comparable only to Switzerland. But I understand that that has made life quite difficult uh, for the government because, you know, you put two measures on the ballot, one of, you know, would you like us to reduce your taxes? The other one is, do you want us to increase spending on education? People will say yes to both. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, <laughs> that that doesn't leave a lot of room, room to move. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, given that, given that the, the constraints that a state government has on the ability to do things like quantitative easing, how does a voter-approved bond uh, sit alongside that? Because that is, is essentially government debt. It is, but just between you and me, I'm sure no one's listening to the podcast. So it, it's paid off of debt services, you know, gradually, usually over 30 years over the life of the bond. And um, some people don't see it as a direct hit on their personal pocketbook. Yeah. But more as a long-term expenditure. So bonds should be set up that they benefit a long-term, that long-term benefit. But a state has to be concerned. We used to have the threshold that uh, maybe only six percent of your general fund should be set aside for debt service. Well, when you have a downtown downturn in the economy, you still have to pay off your debt service for all the existing bonds. Mm. And the last time we had a recession in 2008, that was getting up to 11 and 12%. And then you really had to make cuts because it's the first call off of the general fund is retiring the bonds that people voted for. So that's when schools got hurt. Things. So you have to be smart about it and you can't have too many bonds on the book. It's not free money. There is a a price to be paid, but it can be done thoughtfully, especially if it has long-term benefits. It's a good investment. Can I talk to you about uh, public support? I mean, you just mentioned, you know, that you have to be empowered by a essentially a referendum to be able to do some of these things. 
California does seem to have a very high level of bipartisan support for action on climate change. And you've had Democratic governors and you've had Republican governors like Arnold Schwarzenegger who have been very aggressive in action on climate change. And so in that sense, it doesn't seem to matter, you know, whether it's a Democrat or what I, you know, I might be wrong about this, but from the outside looking in, that it seems that there is a continuity of public policy around climate action, even when administrations change. And that is unusual anywhere in the world, but it, it seems particularly unusual in the United States. I would say right now it's even more difficult because uh, it's it's no secret on the national level. It's more partisan than I've ever seen in my lifetime where pressures put on state or local people that have to be members of the Republican Party to follow their leader. And you're not seeing as much bipartisan support than you used to see. I uh, had the good fortune of serving under uh, three governors, um, Gray Davis and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jerry Brown. And now we have Gavin Newsom. We're very fortunate. That's maybe one of California's secret success stories because regardless of party, and uh, they only can serve up to eight years each, um, regardless of party, they support these policies. So we haven't had the interruptions that you'll see, uh, you're seeing on the national level. Also, secrets of success in California are agency people and the Air Research Board and Public Utilities Commission and the California Energy Commission are lots of times there for 20 or 30 years. It takes that long to implement policies. We're not seeing the um, political interference in trying to overturn what they're working on. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's far different than what we're looking at on the national level. They still have support for the budgets. And I think it's because maybe one of our um, biggest surprises to me was at the beginning, when we were sort of thinking of these as environmental bills, they are now so, so much supported by so many businesses, whether you're in the energy efficiency sector or solar installer, investor capitalist, whatever it is. Uh, this is a part of the fabric of California heart. I did a survey once on everyone's legislative district. You could find four or five businesses that were thriving in all over California. They're not all in the Silicon Valley or San Francisco or Los Angeles, maybe more, even more so in the rural areas where there's space for uh, solar panels and things like that, renewable energy facilities. So um, it's really important to continually remind people how we transitioned and for the better, because these are actually perhaps a little more stable jobs than just relying on a hospitality sector, for example, an economy and they're more uh, better paying jobs. So uh, I don't think there's ever turning back. And the coalition that originally supported what were considered environmental policies is a lot broader now to include a lot of businesses, Silicon Valley Leadership Group, or even the Los Angeles Business Council. People are very supportive of these new clean technology policies because they've been good for their bottom lines as well. Right. So it's, it sounds like what you've done is, is uh, almost created a new set of 
vested interests. You know, like the, when you shift the status quo, actually this is the new, the new status quo and people are reluctant to let that go because that'll kind of hit them negatively. I think they see the benefits of not being reliant on maybe fossil fuels, especially if they're coming from other states. If you're having homegrown energy here with the jobs that come with it, that's certainly more supportable. Plus, uh, most Californians, regardless of party, is I think it's just the same in New Zealand when you're surrounded by beautiful oceans and mountains and things like that, and lakes and rivers, you have an appreciation perhaps for environment and that's part of your values. It certainly is a beautiful place, California. I've had a uh, the opportunity to spend a little bit of time there and there are similarities uh, between parts of California and parts of New Zealand as well. So I can see how that, that might affect the uh, the culture there, um, but it does seem like you have a an extraordinary degree of public support. Um, and I, I think I saw a, a survey from the Public Policy Institute in California saying about 71% of California adults support your 100% renewable energy goal. Two in three residents support the law that requires California to reduce emissions to 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. And that to me is, is very significant because that's clearly, you know, they're a well-respected, independent, nonpartisan um, institute that does that annual poll every July. They started in 2001 when the RPS and tailpipe bill is done it every year since. Sometimes it's higher, uh, lower, but it's across all areas of California. That's a surprise, not just the urban areas, across all demographic groups, mm. you know, all different races. I mean, you name it. Um, it's very supported. But we saw in the last oh, four years, let's say, um, a little tweak on the Republican side that maybe they shouldn't be on record supporting these. Right. So a small drop, but not much, not much at all. And so uh, it's it has been, to quote uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, these policies have generally been good for the economy and good for the environment. And uh, that's... And that's something everyone can support. And our, I have to give a shout out to our universities. 20 years ago, this wasn't the major topic of study. Now, almost every university in California has a sustainability major or doctorate or master's program. And across all fields of study, engineering or law, they have the climate centers at the UCLA Law School. So uh, we're seeing a, a broader application of these policies across all uh, different economic interests. That is interesting because in, in New Zealand, it is still sort of sectoral. You know, there are, there are you know, some sectors that, that see the transition to a low carbon economy as a threat to their way of life or their way of living, to their uh, incomes and jobs. Um, and, and I think there's still a sense of uh, belief that reducing emissions can only come at the expense of economic growth and development, uh, at the expense of industry and at the expense of jobs and livelihoods. Um, but it seems to me that California over, you know, 20 years or so has demonstrated that the reverse can be true. Is that your experience? It, it can be. It's it's how you transition. That's the challenge. So we're having a difficult time, let's say, with the cement industry. 
they're very carbon intensive. Mm-hmm. They can't really do too many things to reduce their emissions. But the last thing you want to do is have them just move to Nevada. We buy their product, but we still have all the global emissions. So that solves nothing. So we do have some sensitivity to how to figure out how to uh, move um, all sectors of the economy over to a cleaner future fairly. And so the biggest challenge is that jobs transition. It's possible. Um, labor sometimes gets nervous if you have a lot of people working let, at that natural gas power plant I just mentioned, and they were very upset. And now they're on the front page of the paper talking about all the new jobs that they'll be able to do at, with the construction of this battery storage facility and how their workers can um, uh, pick up the certificates in order to work there also. Can I talk to you about uh how inequality intersects with the transition. Uh, so, you know, you're kind of hinting at it there. Um, California, like we mentioned earlier, is the world's fifth largest economy. Um, like New Zealand, there are significant inequities between inequalities between the richest and the poorest residents uh, in in the in the country. Um, and the current crisis, I think, has surfaced some of those inequalities um, even more than was present uh, before COVID-19 reached our shores. What are your views on, I mean, you, you just said, you know, it depends on how you do the transition, but what are your views on how you deal with the twin challenges of needing to shift your economy to a low carbon economy? Um, and, and that is disruptive. And at the same time, you know, try and create a fairer economy and and deal with the challenge of inequality uh, within within your society. And um, we're seeing that split between the very top one or two percent of our income group and the growing number of people that uh, are falling into um, such a lower income level that maybe one out of five is going to struggle to even have a roof over their head. We're seeing growing sense of homelessness. We have some severe societal challenges to go with it. I'm a former school teacher, public school teacher by background in trade. So I always come back to uh, the equalizer is a, a good public educational system that everyone can participate in. It's not always easy. Um, but as far as some of these newer jobs and this newer economy, um, uh, providing access to at least our community college system. That's a two-year system. And there's a lot of amazing certificate programs for like solar installers or loose goes on. Um, also apprenticeship programs that are sponsored by our labor unions. We need to ramp that up so people feel that they have uh, different options. Not everyone has to go to a four-year university. I'm not suggesting that at all, but what kind of jobs can we create outside of in California, uh, our people that are struggling right now are either the farm workers, the people that are in the hotel and hospitality business whose jobs have closed, right? Hotels and restaurants are people that are impacted, uh, have to go to work in just to pay their rent, and then they're being 
exposed to potentially the coronavirus. Uh, very, very challenging times. And if anything, we're we're seeing that even more today, or maybe recognize it more today than the inequality and and the challenges people face. And a lot of it is uh, we're losing in California and other parts of the United States, the middle class. Mm. So we're going in the wrong direction and maybe it's a global phenomena and you might have the solution you'd like to share with us. <laughs> well, look, it is something that we are struggling with ourselves as well. And we have seen over the course of the last 30 years, as a result of government policy, uh, that those inequalities um, have become multi-generational. And so that just makes it even more difficult to to resolve. Um, I, I I think we we have a program of work in our government to uh, to address that, but it is one of those things that just takes a very long time. And actually, uh, you probably won't see the results in any significant way until after we've left office, because it's such you know the the impacts of those policies take such a long time to yes. uh, to yep. to resolve. It was interesting to me before you said. Uh, that your public servants in those in those government agencies had been there for twenty or thirty years, and actually that's how long it takes to implement policy, mm-hmm. um, which uh, slightly depressed me <laughs> at the time because I'm not that patient. <laughs> yes, well, the, it, you need those people there because in California we're all under term limits, legislature and governors and things. So um, thank goodness for the agencies, or we. And the continuity so far, I'll knock on wood here, uh, we've had several Republicans and Democrats in office, and they're not always on the same page on all issues, whether it's taxes or other things, but we've been fortunate on environmental protection. And I'll just sort of back up and say, ironically, perhaps, it was Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California who created the first Air Resources Board. It was President Richard Nixon who signed into law in 1970 the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act and our Endangered Species Act. And we're getting ready for the 50th anniversary of that here in California. And so those are Republican leaders. And so I, generally speaking, people want to do both. They want to have that sound economy, free market economy, and, and a healthy environment. And we're, right now we're going in the wrong direction and we somehow have to use this unfortunate situation we're in with this crisis to maybe use it as an opportunity to do things in the future that uh, are in the long-term best interests of everyone, not just locally, but globally. Senator Pavley, that seems like a perfect place for us to uh, finish our conversation. Thank you so much again for your time and your generosity of spirit. Thank you very much. And I got my information about New Zealand from my next door neighbor of 20 years who now lives in New Zealand. So she sent me some information. Really? So that was very helpful. And she always says there's a, it's an open invitation for me to visit. So someday you may see me on your shores. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to Fran Pavley for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. 
Next week, we'll be back in the US, this time speaking to the political commentator and author Ezra Klein. I'll see you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.